I had like this huge sticky note map on my wall. And then I started to be like, okay, this cluster is specifically for these things that like a bunch of people said, you know, and really finding clusters. That's what affinity map is. And that's really kind of how I got to where it is today. It wasn't, you know, oh, I'm going to do this because I think it's going to be good. It was literally other people telling me what they need. Please introduce yourself and set the agenda for us. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Moore. You may also know me as the design thinker. Now, what that really means is I'm a communication strategist and coach who blends the discipline of design thinking with the art of nonviolent communications. And my work focuses on transforming quiet leaders into authentic storytellers so they can go out in the world and tell their story and hopefully change lives forever. I also want to introduce Diana. Diana. Thank you. Hi. Okay, so my name is Diana. I am originally from Lithuania. My last name, I say Chipshita, which I know is really difficult. I am a founder of an app called Village. We are working on it. It's for single parents. I'm a single mom myself of a four-year-old boy who is thankfully at his daycare right now, so I can talk to you guys. But yeah, here we are, and I am very excited to share my process and my team and what we're doing. So today's agenda, we're going to do a couple of things. First, we'll recap a few highlights from last week's event, reintroduce you to some key people, and finally dig into today's topic, which is understanding the world using design thinking. And so, Chris, Diana, are you ready? I am ready. Yes, please go. Excellent. So to recap, we break these events down to match four phases of design thinking based on, this is my own personal model, I call it the real world design thinking model. Um, And it breaks down in four phases. One, seeing the world. Number two is understanding the world. Number three, the third phase, making for the world. And the final phase, telling the world your story. You made this beautiful thing, now how do we get it out there? and people are aware of it. So each part represents distinct activities a person might do when following the design thinking process. And I believe it's important to teach the power of design thinking through more practical application. And I realize we're limited with audio, uh, but we're, we're trying to frame this practical application through Diana's experience in bringing an app to life. And so, be thinking about some of those questions you want to ask if we need to dig into more. Um, But we are ready to move on and make this real by letting Diana take over. And I want really what I want you to do here is share that goal in creating an app that helps single parents, you know, help recap what your, your app intends to do. And of course the name you've chosen for it. So Diana, over to you. 
Okay, so um, the app, again, um, I call it Village because the idea for me is, I think it takes, number one, I guess everybody knows this, it takes a village to raise a child. And I think in today's society, a lot of that is lacking, especially if you're a single parent. You pretty much have to do everything on your own. You do not have much of support or community. Hopefully you have parents, you know, but what if you don't? What if you're traveling? What if you move away and you don't know anybody and you are literally on your own? If you have a spouse, you can kind of hopefully rely on each other. But as a single mom or a single dad, that is very often not the case. And for me talking to a lot of people, I'm realizing that pretty much everybody has a single parent story, be it they come from a single parent household, they are, or their sister is, or their best friend. I'm just kind of amazed, kind of like I share this idea and this app with people and it's like everybody that I talk to seems like they can relate to it. And I'm like, man, there's so many single parents out there, you know, but the idea for the app basically from, again, my research, talking to a lot of single parents, number one, I want to create a community. I want for single parents, especially who are living close by, like let's say like within the zip code or the city you live in, to find one another, to be able to like help each other. Like first it starts in the app, you talk, you kind of see who's around you. Uh, My idea is to have like a live map that you can kind of have an idea how many other single parents are around you. And uh, especially if you can relate like maybe you are a widow or you have a child who has a disability or you're a single dad and you can visually see other single parents who are the same exact kind of experience that you are having and you can kind of like help each other out talk to each other build that community build your own village and village of like other people who are in similar situations within the app So that's kind of the first thing. The next thing is resources, being able to share like legal resources, like maybe there's a doctor that you know who helps or like, you know, for free or there's a daycare that's like really good in like your area, your zip code, your city, whatever. Um, And people can kind of upvote and be like, yes, this daycare is amazing, you know, like um, stuff like that or maybe parenting resources, financial housing organizations, that kind of stuff. And number three would be like fast childcare. So we're still working on it and we'll see. Thank you, Diana. You know, and and can you share two or three observations you were seeing in your world that that really tipped you over? Meaning like what got you excited? Say, gosh darn it, I'm getting out there and I'm creating this app. Uh honestly as you were talking, I was thinking of stuff that is still happening that like literally happened earlier this week that Mm. I know happened to me back when I had this idea, which uh, basically I had like an appointment, like kind of like an emergency thing. And I couldn't find the babysitter for my son. Like I, I had something to go to and I could either ask my mom but like it depends on uh like how she's feeling if she wants to help or not so it's very unreliable or like I went to like three babysitters that I usually use and none of them was available (laughs) you know so basically that was kind of the idea for me that I really 
like need someone to help me with my son and I have nobody to help me, you know, and that happens a lot. And I'm sure that happens to many single parents and maybe not just single parents, I'm sure too. But I think single parents, especially that happens a lot where you need like, maybe you need to go to the hospital or there's a family emergency or you need to prepare for an interview, you know, and you're like, I really need a couple hours to myself right now. I guess that's one of them. Yeah, no, those are all good points. Particularly, um, uh, you know, I make this personal too. Is that uh, unfortunately, um, someone close to me um, got got COVID, and so it made it difficult for you know reaching out to that person to help with you know childcare or you know having to come over. But you know, that's a very real thing. So I appreciate you digging into that in design thinking. There are several methods for seeing the world. And really, it's just my you know, generalized way of saying research. We're going to dig into what it means to actually understand, analyze, unpack, whatever word you want to use there, to truly get at the heart of the research. Because at the end of it, you just got all these data points. So how do you make sense? And this is where, in this case, Diana had completed her initial research, and now needs to make sense of it all. She had several interviews under her belt, a lot of data all over the place. So Diana, can you share with us what you did to make sense of that initial chunk of research? Yeah, it's, it's a good thing that I've kind of passed that so I can talk about what I did and I'm not actually right. doing it, you know. <laughs> um, the first thing I did, and I've learned this in my design school, is like I had all this research and I think maybe the first thing is I just got a bunch of sticky notes, right? <laughs> and I, either that, like I started writing things down. I remember on like sticky notes and stuff. And it was first like from like the things that I could think of in my head, like, you know, like, okay, these things were said, whatever. And then kind of going through my notes, going through things I found, um, going through like kind of like interview notes that I did and really writing down things that like stuck out to me and also like the Facebook feed and people kind of responding. So I had a bunch of different sources of research that I collected, uh, the surveys, you know, again, the Facebook interviews, uh, diary studies. I guess I'm, I'm really big in research and I, I yeah. So like I, I just started doing like sticky note writing, kind of the main things that jumped out at me. And then I started putting those on like a wall and I have pictures, maybe you've seen on my PowerPoint, <laughs> but like I had like this huge, like sticky note map on my wall and, and you want to use colors, of course, different color sticky notes for like different things that you're like writing down. But um, once I had everything down and all the sticky notes on the wall, then I started to be like, okay, this kind of like, this is for like uh, people talking about like being lonely maybe and the kind of putting the sticky notes about community kind of like feeling isolated one thing so this cluster is specifically for these things that like a bunch of people said you know and, and really finding clusters that's what affinity map is finding things like like and this is not me saying this is other people saying this stuff so like really okay this is like father kind of thing this is you know uh, child care stuff and that's really kind of how 
I got to where it is today, like mm -hmm. how I got to the points that the app is focusing on. It wasn't, you know, oh, I'm going to do this because I think it's going to be good. It was literally other people telling me what they need, like a lot of people, you know. <laughs> right. So, Deanna, what I'm hearing you say is that you, out of that initial research, you were, I use the term bucket, but like you were putting the different categories themes into these clusters to to understand the the different parts of your research is that right uh yeah exactly i was just kind of clustering or i guess bucket thing that you're calling <laughs> into like uh like this is like one kind of section and these are like the sticky notes and and i think i also used like uh like people maybe like for the interviews i think i wrote down some like names like maybe the green sticky notes were like were for like angela and the red ones were for like susie you know so i could have an idea of like which person said what and where the clusters were going the different colors meant different people is that right yeah, I think that's kind of how I did it. Yeah, but but there's different ways to do it. I know that I, you just taught me something. That's a great, that's a great way to start to categorize it. But oh. like so affinity really means similarities, right? You're bucketing things that are similar. So if it was all about childcare, you had different quotes or different elements from your research that had to do with childcare. Is that correct? Yeah, well, uh, childcare and really just what single parents were telling me. It wasn't necessarily just childcare because some parents were saying that they felt like they had no support, you know. Like some parents were saying, like, I feel like I do everything on my own. I have nobody to help me. Uh, so I guess that could be childcare. But other parents were saying, like, I really want, like, a role model like a male role model to be in my son's life, you know? <laughs> That's like one person said that, like, I want, like, a good man to come in and to show my son what it's like to be a good man, you know? <laughs> Again, that was literally someone said that to me. So I'm going to pause there. Uh, Chris, you've been awfully quiet, but I want to make sure you have some space here. Is this something you've done before in your work or something akin to it? You're talking about affinity mapping? Yes, sir. You know, not exactly like this, but clustering things together, uh, I've done in a less formal way. We would create image buckets when we're doing research. So when I was uh, writing a concept for a music video or commercial, I would walk away from the client brief and say, here are the three main keywords. And I would put a team on it and say, anything that you think remotely relates to this, grab an image and put it in this folder. And through that, you can quickly scan and spot patterns and notice where there are gaps. And so that is usually the spring for, for some of our creativity. Another thing that we do is, I, I think we, we would refer to it as like an empathy map. It's not quite the same, but figuring out who the ideal target or customer is and trying to walk in their shoes and look at the world through their eyes by creating a visual representation of that. So what, what they would see, what they would do. So we would collect images based on those key prompts. So similar, but a little bit different. That's great. And actually that does give us to a nice segue of empathy map, which was the other tool I wanted to talk about here. And I do want to just pause for a moment and have a word on empathy because I think it's, it's kind of thrown around a lot today and it can often lose its meaning, but we also, because it's a very empathy is very much a success factor in the design thinking process. 
And so I'm not a psychologist or a behavioral scientist, but I've come to learn that there are about three types of empathy. And one is cognitive empathy, which is, yep, I get it. You're in a bad situation or you're super excited. And that can help you, especially as a creative, like Chris was describing, it's connecting. I know what they're saying and I can go and create something on that, on that notion. Then there's that emotional empathy, which is you've gone through the same thing. You, you have shared feelings and that helps you build an emotional connection. The, the third empathy that I've learned about is called compassionate empathy, which goes beyond simple understanding of others or sharing the same feelings. It's what actually motivates you to take action to help however you can. So the empathy map can contain all those three types, but I don't think you have to necessarily go through the same experiences as others to truly create something special. So for example, Chris, when you and your team created the motion graphics and keep me honest here for the Gnarls Barkley's crazy, you didn't literally need to be crazy to do the work, but I can imagine you and your team immersing yourself in understanding what does that word mean? What does it mean both literally and figuratively and how is it represented by the artist? Did I get that right, Chris? Yeah, yeah. Uh, some some clarification there. Um, Robert Howes directed that music video. He wrote this treatment about a Rorschach test coming alive, and he asked for us to help him bring that vision into reality. And so, when you first go on and search up anything about Rorschach tests, the inkblot tests, if you will, there's very little that you can find because I guess if enough people saw them ahead of time, it would allow them to answer the question differently. So there has to be some level of secrecy around what the Rorschach test actually looked like. And so there was very little that we can find. And so as we're exploring ink blots, and, and at that time there were no references that we could find, we, we basically had to invent a solution to try to see what would work. And then of course that that spawned like a, a whole clone of, of copycat kind of videos using the same concept. But we did look into some of it as much as we can find online. Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize that was such a challenge for you, but you know, I, I take for granted how easily we can search images, but um, that's an interesting side note. So back to the empathy map. Um, again, I encourage everybody, if you're, if you can follow along, Google empathy map canvas or template. Um, there's kind of one universal one with the big head on it and it has seven parts. And I'll, I'll briefly go through the seven parts, and then I'm going to have Deanna talk about her empathy map. So just to keep it high level, the seven parts are who, like who do you actually want to empathize with? Who are you trying to solve for? Really understanding the person, the situation they're in, and, and possibly what role they play in it. Part two is what they need to do. What What is the thing that can get them out of their quagmire their challenge or get to a better outcome but it's not also about the doing but it's how you as say the designer in this case or in diana's case how do you know you've been successful say so, so number three is see what do they actually see what are they seeing in the marketplace in their immediate environment are they watching or reading certain things that are motivating their uh, emotions number four is say so what do they say during the interviews? And Deanna, I'm going to have you touch on this a little bit. Uh, what are they hearing? But it's also about how you can imagine what the person you just interviewed, what they might say as a way to guide 
uh, your creation, much like what Chris was saying is like, okay, well, what would a Rorschach test look like? I know a Rorschach test can't say something, but it's imagining without having the person or the thing there all the time. Okay, number five, what do they do? This isn't what they're going to be doing, but what do they do in their current state? What are their behaviors? What are they doing today? Number six is here. What are they hearing from friends, family, coworkers, secondhand gossip, if you will? You know, hearing certain negative things can make you feel down or positive things. And then uh, lastly is what are they thinking and feeling? And the empathy map does a good job of just breaking this down between pains and gains. And pains is just a simple way of saying and capturing fears, frustrations, that type of thing. And then the gains are, what do they want? What do they need? Dreams, hopes, desires. So Deanna, I want to be a little careful here because I, I may have misheard you, but um, on the empathy map that you shared with me, it seemed like you captured what on face value looked like harsh sentiments. Like, oh, you really need to get a man. Hang <laughs> <laughs> on. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for her and her kids. Like on face value, that looks really bad, but like help me understand what the context there. Yeah, I guess you really analyzed my empathy map, huh? Uh, <laughs> like I'm looking at it right now myself. Um, but yeah, so like um I did the empathy map after I and, and again, this was really initially after interviewing about eight single moms, you know, and and I need to do another one for single fathers because that gave me such a huge, like, open, like, open my mind, I guess. Um, but, like, for, for this one, yeah, I guess, you know, like what you said. So, like, um, like when you mentioned number six, what do they hear? And I kind of, again, the first things that came to my mind, this was, again, after absorbing all the research I did, was, uh, like you said, you really need to get a man. Your son needs a role model. Uh, you really need to get it together already. These are the things I wrote in my empathy map. And then I am so sorry for her and her kids. You know, like, and and again, like I asked single moms, like, how do you think, how do you think that single moms or single parents are viewed in society, like in your opinion? And several of them said like someone who is poor, someone who like, you know, doesn't like, have it together, someone who clearly like failed in life, I guess, you know, um, like if she's alone, then something's wrong with her, right? And, and I feel like all that stuff, like when you hear it, and same thing with being a single dad, when you hear certain things and you see certain things over and over again, I think you kind of start to believe it, you know, you're like, well, maybe I am like screwed up or maybe something is wrong with me because I don't have a man. I don't have, you know, as, as a woman or as a father, maybe, you know, if I don't have a, a woman to take care of the house and the kids, clearly something's wrong with me. So these are some beliefs I think that a lot of people, especially single parents, have these insecurities about and can be vulnerable, I think, and be like more defensive as a result, I think someone said uh, from his observation of single parents, a lot of single parents are more defensive and more guarded, I guess, which I totally agree. <laughs> um, yeah. And so to the audience where I start to use empathy map and when I work alongside Diana and her team, I really want to dig into these sentiments, not because we're not doctors, we're not going to really 
dispel a lot of these beliefs. Like that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of self-work that needs to be happening. But as an app, maybe you could create daily affirmations. Like, yes, you're a great mom. You're doing great. You know, check in with yourself. Um, Take a moment to pause, catch yourself, you know, tap yourself on the back. These are small little steps that one could take as they're designing this app. Um, And that's, that's where we try to connect, you know, feeling, I don't want to say feeling sorry for someone, but having that empathy and then turning that empathy into action. I feel like uh, I agree with what you just said. And I feel like a lot of times it's really having, like, again, going back to my app, it's really having someone who understands what you're going through. Like uh, when I was interviewing single dads, one of them uh, knows a bunch of single fathers. And he was telling me how like all these kind of fathers almost come to him to talk to him because he has been through the things that he, like they're going through and how like they feel that they're not good enough for their kids. And in turn, they're like, I'd rather not be in their life because their mom is so much better than I am and I couldn't even measure up, you know? So having another person who understands and can listen to you and kind of support you, someone who's been through it, I think it's like, it's like 12 step groups that people know about it. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to our conversation. You've done your interviews. You've put affinities to them. You've clustered them, bucketed them. You know, Chris, thank you for using the term bucket. I thought I was the only one. <laughs> um, and then now you, you have some empathy. You're starting to understand, okay, I know what they're going through. I can, I can start to figure out how to make this app work in these certain areas. There is one other method that I like to combine with Empathy Map, and it's called Rose Thorn Bud. Essentially, Rose Thorn Bud is just a metaphor for capturing your observations against um, what's working, the rose, all the pretty parts, what's challenging, the thorns, you know, things you, that might prick you or get in your way, and then Bud. And no, no 420 jokes, please. Um, the Bud is what what is about to blossom. What are some possible opportunities? These could be both a challenge and an opportunity, or it could be an idea that you had like two years ago. You know, Deanna's very good at this. She'll be like, oh, I had this idea two years ago. Now let's put it in the app. <laughs> so um, let me, let's tell a story, but let's make this rose thorn bud a little bit more real. Chris, I, I'm, I'm curious, could you use this at home, this method, rose thorn bud? Yeah, if I was uh, open-minded enough, I could use it on anything, I think. Do you not consider yourself open-minded enough? <laughs> Sometimes I'm not. I'm not going to lie to you, Eric. Sometimes, like, for example, I just need people to get stuff done. And so I'm like, I, I wear the commander hat at that point in, in the household and say, you know, this really isn't up for debate. Like, for example, a classic family, the dope family conundrum is where do we want to eat? And it becomes a nightmare. Um, and I'll tell you the different roles. And it may lead to a productive conversation. Or it might be a total dead end. But here we are. Right. So one of my boys is very particular. The other one 
is particular, but he's very open and he's very flexible. My wife has very specific things she would prefer to eat, but as the mother, she feels like she has to accommodate everyone. And I don't care about anything. I just want a decision. So there we are, like the four staff members of the Doe household. And this repeats itself every single time. So when I'm being the commander, Eric, I just say, we're going. If you want to eat, get in the car. Where are we going? I don't know. When we get there, when we get there, do I, do I have to go? Nope. You can stay home, make your own food. So they're like, okay. So they get in the car and I just drive. Wherever we stop is where we eat. And that's the way it works. Where it gets complicated is my wife's like, where we need. I'm like, do you have a preference? And the answer is always a lie, not intentionally. No, I don't. And I say, how about here? I hate that. How about here? Don't want that either. <laughs> oh you know what I'm talking about, right? It's like, okay, why don't you tell me where you want? But I need your input. I'm like, I just gave you my input. So now I just like, I'm driving. If we pass where we want to eat, then we've passed it. And I won't turn around. So there's a, there's a, what is it? I'm time boxing <laughs> to use a uh, facilitation term. Yeah. Basically, if I pass it, we're done. And then we'll go where we go. You see, it's always a nightmare. And ultimately, the conclusion almost always is the one that cares the most in the car, my older son, he usually gets his way because my wife accommodates. Uh, how old are your boys? 18 and 16. Perfect. Teenage boys. I, my son is not old enough, but I have experience with teenage girls. So here's what I want to ask you. When they come home from school or wherever and you say, hey, how did it go today? Do they mutter sort of monosyllabic answers like, eh, it was fine. Or do they converse with you? Do they really dig into it? Um, oftentimes they give very little answers, uh, except for when I really engage them in the conversation where I don't ask them, how did it go today? Where there's some options there. I'll, I'll, I'll ask them different kinds of questions. Tell me about your relationship with X. And then it's kind of like very directed and then they will open up. Uh, but oftentimes uh, both my sons are, are pretty unusual in this way that they, they don't, they're not trying not to tell this stuff. It's just sometimes they don't know what to say. Uh, you've got a good situation. My my oldest, when she was 16, she'd come home from school and be like, how was the day? What's been going on? And she would do the, um, yeah, fine. And it took me a while to figure out, it wasn't that she didn't want to talk. She just wanted to unwind after school before launching into a conversation. And so I suggested she and I use Rose Thorn Bud at the dinner table. And so what we would do is, you know, get at the table and I'd say, all right, RTB me, you know, our Rose Thorn Bud. And she'd say, oh, you know, this thing went really well today. You know, I had a really good connection with my friend, you know, the school lunch wasn't as bad, whatever the, the goodness was. She would share a challenge and then an opportunity like, oh, you know, I think I'm going to get a jump start on homework. And it really helped us to have better conversations. And that's what makes RTB so powerful is that it's one, it's easy to learn and you can apply it to most any situation. And I think for designers, it's, it's one of those really great things to get your client to engage you with instead of, you know, just this tirade of critique and, um, you know, lambasting your work. You, you, you set it up in this framework in which you can share the good, the bad, the ugly, if you will. But it has this bonus of working not only in seeing the world and making observations like, like Deanna was doing, but you can apply it to your research. And what I mean by that is you could say, okay, here are all the good things 
that are happening today for single parents. So those are all the roses. Then the challenges, and and you, it's preferred to do it on a sticky note. Um, I don't, it doesn't matter if you're on a virtual whiteboard or a physical piece of paper, because then you can move them around. But it's also a snapshot. It's not these long-winded paragraphs of, well, uh, parent went here and did this thing, and then this thing happened, and it was bad. You just summarize it, and it makes the research easy to digest and sp honestly spit back out in a nice little findings report to, to your client as well. Man, I am learning quite a lot about parenting from both of you. Like usually <laughs> with my son, like I get him from daycare and I'm like, how are you doing? How was your day? How are you feeling? I'm really big on feelings because I think emotions are like number one for like anything really like, um, but that's usually like what I ask, you know? And now I'm thinking, you know, when I get him from daycare today, I'm going to ask, you know, like, how is Delilah today? Like, how did you get, because he has, he has like three girlfriends at his school. <laughs> and I'm going to be like, like, how did, how did Delilah go, you know, or whatever, you know, but I, I, I'm learning, I need to be more specific, you know, so that's like one thing I'm learning and not just generic with my questions towards my son. Yeah, I would say I made that observation too, Chris. I think you, you did that really well where you, you, you narrowed it down to a relationship with a person versus just how's it going. So kudos to you, sir. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, you're a good dad. I try to be sometimes. You have to interview my kids to get the real report, but yeah. <laughs> Deanna, did you have anything you wanted to add? Any questions we might have overlooked? <laughs> One question I wanted to ask is how do you decide which research findings are valid? And, you know, do you uh, think there's such a thing as not valid research, especially when talking to people or interviewing? You know, if you, if either if you have an opinion on it. Um, I don't have, uh, as part of my process, heavy research uh, for the, a lot of what I used to do in the creative space. It was not the kind of research that you were referring to. So I'm going to pass this over to Eric. Uh, you know, I'm going to hold you to account on that one a little bit, Chris, because I know the work that you do. You probably still do research, right? You just do market research. You try to understand your pro group community. Nothing there that has a research well, element. I mean, when 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 Deanna was asking about like, how do you know if the the research is is valid? I'll, I'll expand it this way. Here's what I find: what happens a lot. People find data that lines up with their conclusion. And this happens to me all the time. Okay. I'll give you some examples. Like for example, Ben Burns, he's our chief operating officer. He'll, I, I don't think he does this intentionally. It just happens. He's like, uh, here's what the data tells us based on three years of financial data. Here's what I think we need to do. And I'm like, that's not what I want to do. Or the team will say, Hey, Chris, uh, according to the YouTube data, we should call our video this. I'm like, well, what human talks like that? And so what people do is they, they use the data sometimes as a crutch or sometimes as confirmation bias. It happens over and over again. People will conduct interviews, right? Like they'll interview 10 or 20 pro group members and they'll say, here's what they want. And I'm a big believer in this, in that historically speaking, the customers are the worst people to tell you what they really, really want. They want more of the same for it to be faster and for it to be cheaper. But if you're in a space where you're trying to innovate and create new ideas and new services, you cannot rely on them. I think this is where leadership comes in and, and I, I take some pride in that. I think 
my my gut is basically the right way to go. And my gut comes from reading lots and lots of comments, understanding the overall sentiment, and then thinking if they knew how to tell me what they wanted, they would, but they they don't. Because this happens all the time. They'll say, uh, we, we needed uh, to learn how to niche. And I, I put lectures, worksheets, and they, they don't niche. I'm like, well, that's obviously not what you want. Ultimately for them, it becomes a commitment issue that they're afraid and they're operating from a scarcity mindset. And so when we can solve that, then we've solved the problem. So that's that's where I have some some trouble with the data stuff, depending on who's presenting it to you, what kind of bias they have. We all have bias, by the way. Uh, the data comes out the way they want it to come out. Almost always, it seems like. Um, there is a whole community uh, within, in my small design thinking spheres, we keep each other in check around our biases. Um, and we try not to lean into the data too much. But, you know, unfortunately for someone new to this, you know, if you're a junior designer or you just want to learn about this, you're like, okay, yeah, but how do I know? <laughs> um, how, how do I know that gut instinct? And I think, Chris, with your years of experience, you, you've been able to parse through what what's real and what's proxy. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to mention one other quick thing here, just because I don't want to throw anybody in the bus. I throw myself under the same bus. I lied down on the floor next to you is yeah. this thing that I've heard Blair N say quite a few times that all strategy is autobiographical, right? We, yeah. we tend to recommend to other people to do things that we've done that has worked for us. So here's the example. Um, ben is a person who's not had a formal design education. He's kind of gone from the ground up working with very small clients, doing very small projects to where he's at now. I'm the person who went to, I think, a first-class design school, graduated, had a lot of success, worked with the biggest clients and brands in the world. So when we look at a product and what we want to teach and how we want to make it, we're looking at it from a very different lens. I'm looking at it, I need to create a $2,000 program for people who need to grow to the next level. And Ben's looking at, like, I need to make a $50 resource for the people who are scraping by. Now, we want the same goal. We're just having completely different tactics. So we just want to think about that a little bit. You know, at some point you do need to make a decision. Um, I won't answer about valid, non-valid, but let's assume you've got, you, you come to an agreement between you and your team. Yes, these are, these are 10 really good areas to dig into, meaning of the research. And I like to use a thing called an impact difficulty grid or matrix. You might hear it as in impact effort. I do it a lot differently, which is, I take those 10 items from research and I only looked at the impact first. How impactful will this thing be to the app in this case, Diana? So like if you really, really want to solve for the um, limiting beliefs, well, I'm not a good parent, like that's a big chunk to swallow, right? So that I would argue like that's impactful, but I don't know if it's something we can actually solve because it's very difficult. So that's how I start to think about research and what to move forward on. I feel like, you know, like what you just said, like something like how do people trust something? I feel is more like, like, you know, you can grasp more like, like how can we create trust in this product? You know, like, I feel like that kind of research, like would definitely be very, you know, servicing for this. And that's something we're working on. Like, you know, what, what do people like, you know, like reviews, uh, ratings, what else? Uh, creates trust and, you know, validity, I guess. All right. Well, I see a familiar face. 
Williams up on the stage. What's happening? Hey, how's it going? So, uh, first of all, great conversation, uh, and both as a parent and a person that studies design thinking for a living. So, um, gotta say, definitely respect the conversation, and I got a lot out of it. Um, I guess I don't have as much of a question as I do a comment, but um, something that I do add to a lot of these processes that were covered today are the societal factors that play for folks. So during interviews, I'll ask folks about uh, forms of oppression that they've experienced and specifically centering what they've shared in the interviews. And then when it comes to the categorization of those things, which is a lot of what we talked about today, I will also form separate categories of putting some of these events and insights and answers into those buckets as well. Uh, okay. So let me make sure I understand that once you, you bucket them, you're, you're drawing your own insights to them. Is that correct? Uh, no, more like uh, some, of the, uh, some of the categories and themes that I pull out of the interviews I will have also asked about forms of oppression that folks have faced and if those particular, what they've shared with me have been impacted by those forms of oppression. Uh, and I'll bucket them into there as well to make sure that when the team is that I'm working with is designing solutions, that they're keeping that in mind and they're doing the least amount of harm as possible when they create solutions. Mm, right. So, Chris, I think... in and William, keep me honest here, but this is a great way to sort of check that bias too. Yeah, right. I, I exactly. think so. Yeah. 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 Well, that's beautiful. Wow. I love it. You know, I just wrote on a note here, Eric, and I, I haven't done this before, but uh, I've been asked this question before, and it's a great self-awareness question before you do any kind of research, which is to quite literally ask, what is my bias? What are my blind spots? And just to write those things down. So that when you're looking at the data, you're kind of, oh, checking in with yourself. My gosh, I wanted to to come out this way and that's why I'm seeing it. So just that kind of moment, pause, reflection can help you prevent from confirming your own bias. Like how I was biased against single fathers, right? Where I was like, oh, they don't need help. And then I'm like, actually, they do a lot. <laughs> like they need a lot of help. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you ask yourself, what is my bias towards single fathers? You would just write like they don't need help. They have all the resources. They don't whatever it is. You then then you're like, whoa, wait a minute. You, I need to check in with myself. That's exactly what happened to me. I was like, I think I'm not being fair here. <laughs> Jignesh, love to hear from you as well. So, I mean, I have actually a kind of question to Krish and uh, you, you, Eric, as well. Like, since uh, most of the organization now going customer-centric, right? So, how do you or when do you uh, do the customer experience in your process? Well, I think that's a pretty broad question because arguably anything's a customer okay. experience. I'm trying to understand what it is that you... Yeah, I had many process uh, at the time of design thinking that you, you uh, mentioned. So in what phase you uh, kind of start customer experience, I mean, uh, doing customer experience in the design thinking phase? Arguably, it's the whole process and it depends on the problem you're solving. But design thinking at its heart is about human centric services or design or processes, which means you're trying to keep the human or in this case, the customer at the center of the decision or the design decision. 
So I don't say it starts and stops anywhere, but at keeping a high level, what I would say to, to Chris's point, sometimes you kind of stop listening to the customer because they're not going to always give you the right data points to solve for the problem. Chris, I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add there, but that's my point on customer experience. Yeah. I mean, um, obviously I don't have the pedigree that Eric has in design thinking and studying these things, but I'm, I'm just leading with intuition and the things that I've learned. If you watch the customer carefully, if you start to look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the very top is self-actualization, uh, uh, what is that called? Em empowerment, uh, feelings of belonging, those kinds of things. And if you look at that, if we live in a society where the base needs are met, food, shelter, clothing, uh, basic things of comfort that you need just to have, and we start to focus on what do our customers dream about having in their life? What is the pain point and a challenge? If you start to look through that lens, you'll start to see them all over the place. And so the, the, the task that I have as a person who runs uh, a community of 700 plus people is to not say, I want to focus in on this one problem. I'm trying my best to do the most good for the most number of people. That means our edge cases will probably feel ignored and frustrated. And it's a conscious decision that I have to make. So if there's an individual problem that doesn't impact the, the large majority of the people in our community, I, I kind of have to like lower those in priority. And so here, here's an example, and I'll just tell you because we're, we're talking about these things. I'm seeing this need, and there's a big push here for our community to make sure that everybody is doing $100,000 or more in revenue each year. Some people are way past that into the millions, but there's still a lot of people who are trying to get through that. So I want to make a target of getting 100 people past $100,000, which if you look at the totality of that's like $10 million in, in money. That's how I want to make an impact. And I think whether or not those lessons that are being shared about how to grow to 100,000 uh, impact everyone, you can still pull pieces from it to impact where you're at. So if you're going from zero to 50, you could be impacted, but maybe there's insight about how to scale and how to grow and develop customer relationships that someone who's at the 500,000 can impact or to, to learn from. So that's the kind of thing that I'm looking at. I love all the uh, comments and sharing that you and Deanna have uh, brought forth. And what I want people to take away from this is that, yeah, I'm pretty passionate about design thinking, but I don't think you have to build an app for it to be a powerful process for any of you listening. So what can we see in the world that either drives us to make an app or a graphic or a Rorschach test that becomes a famous video? And then what can we do to understand what we've seen that then moves us to do some of that making and do it in a way in which it's smartly made because we actually understand it and to Chris's point as well, how do we keep our bias out of it? Like, let's not design for design's sake, as an example. So that's it. I want to thank everybody here. Deanna, any last words from you? Uh, I, number one, thank you, Eric. You are amazing. Super, super grateful for all of your words and feedback and everything and for helping us be here. Honestly, if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't. So I am extremely grateful to you and to Chris, both of you guys and everybody here as well. Thank you. Uh, because at the end of the day, my mission is to help single parents. I want to help myself. I want to help others who are in this kind of situation as well. 
And if you guys want to help us, we very much welcome any kind of feedback, advice, words, anything. Uh, so thank you again. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.